I had a chance uh, over Thanksgiving to go and visit my family out in Lancaster. Uh, my whole uh, side of the family get together. It's, I don't know, 30, 40 of us now. Who knows how, how many keep adding on <laughs> uh, spouses and, and grandbabies and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, but uh, my mom was there and she was uh, telling me, you know, she watches uh, the 11 o'clock service. Uh, she says, I go to church and then I come back and I watch you. Uh, you know, only like a mother did. But she had to remind me that I guess one time I left my microphone on on the last song and uh, you couldn't hear it in here, but they could hear it on the live stream and she said that was not very good, okay? <laughs> Um, and only a way a mom could, she said, make sure you cut that, that off. I said, it wasn't very good. So, uh, but no, um, you know, all joking aside, we know that, that the holidays coming up uh, with Christmas and that season, we've been saying it for the last few weeks, uh, we know it's a really difficult time. Uh, it can be hard in, in a lot of ways. I just want to remind you, uh, back in this corner here, there's a little box back there that has a, a spot for a prayer request. You can write down a prayer request, you can put it in the box. Uh, you can email us at info at churchrefuge.com. Uh, and, and maybe you just need a, a season of prayer uh, because of what's coming up. Uh, we will really want you to know as a church, we will pray for you. Uh, I, I hope you can, can know that. I hope you recognize that every time we take time just to pray uh, in our services, people are writing those notes down. Uh, maybe sometimes it's a little personal and you don't want to share out with other people and you just want to drop in the box or you want to email us. Uh, we keep that in-house just with uh, the elders and the staff and just praying uh, for you. Uh, we can do that. Uh, we would love to do that. That would be an honor for us to do that during this season coming up. So. Uh, please uh, take advantage of that. Uh, we are uh, moving into what we call Advent season here. Uh, as you can tell, uh, we uh, lit the candle there. And <coughs> if you're unfamiliar with that idea of Advent, it is the word uh, arrival. And it's geared uh, around this idea of Christ coming to earth in the first Advent as a baby. And that we recognize that, that he is coming again in a second advent. And so we celebrate the fact is that God fulfilled his promises. A lot of the Old Testament, we're going to look at this in a second, uh, was prophesizing of Jesus coming. And in that first advent, <coughs> he shows up as a, a babe. And so we recognize that, we celebrate that, we honor that. And it also reminds us that he will be faithful and true to his promises to come again and his promises to be with us, and all his promises we can count on. And so we recognize that, we understand that, but let me give you a few other reasons why celebrating Advent is important. First of all, if it reminds us that we're not at the center of God's plan, uh, sometimes we think we are, we think everything kind of revolves around us, uh, especially when things are hard and difficult and then uh, kind of things <coughs> feel like everything is happening here and, and, and we think, okay, God, why is this happening to me? But yet we don't sometimes understand the bigger picture. And so Advent's a reminder that Jesus is a part of God's center of his plan. It also connects us with other generations uh, that have longed for the Messiah. So uh, in the Old Testament, we're longing for him. The, the New Testament recognizes what, who he was. And so er, since then, the church has, for the last 2,000 years, been uh, a part of honoring this moment. And so we can join in with these generations that have been longing for the Messiah. 
It is a chance to slow down, uh, especially in the midst of kind of frantic season. So Advent encourages us, as even as Mary, it's one of the favorite passages I have in Christmas, is, is Mary in the midst of all that chaos, she, she, she pondered these things. She, she held them in her heart. She, she was slowing down enough <coughs> in the midst of, uh, of all that to, to see and to soak in what this was. And so Advent helps us to do that. It also uh, gives us a sense of understanding Christian discontentment and what does that mean? It simply means that we're not made for this, this world. And so even though you'll get those shiny, nice things and those new clothes and those nice little toys, uh, they don't last forever uh, because we recognize that this life is temporal and yet there's something more eternal. And then finally, uh, as I said earlier, it gives us that confidence in the promises of God that these prophecies uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and you know, they've, they've done these things and, and they've done these kind of uh, uh, studies on these things that even if, uh, I think it was the numbers, even if six of those prophecies came true, the, the odds of that happening are so mathematically impossible. Uh, it'd be like one of those things where <coughs> if you had a, uh, a quarter, you put an X on it, and then you filled up the state of Texas with quarters, I think about three feet deep, as if my memory serves me right, the likelihood that you walked around the state of Texas, bent down and picked up that quarter with the X on it would be the likelihood of the fact that those prophecies, when they were given, would be fulfilled in one person, in this person of Jesus. So uh, again, you can look at those things, you can study those things. These things help us to have the confidence in the promises of God. What I want to draw our attention to and what we're going to look at during this Advent season is this understanding of here with us. The significance that Jesus, God, came to be with us. It's so unique. It's so rare. In all religions, they usually have an origin story, a starting point involving some type of prophet, religious man, holy person, even the idea that maybe someone was somewhat not quite human, maybe angel in the idea, but none proclaim that God himself came to be with us. This is who Jesus is, and so we're gonna spend some time looking at uh, a chapter in the Bible in Isaiah 53 that is well known around both Christmas and Easter, or Christmas, yeah, Christmas and Easter, to talking about who is this Jesus. We're gonna use that as our starting point, but we're gonna get into the Christmas story, not as much today, but we'll move into the Christmas story. But we start here because of this prophecy that, the, that Isaiah <coughs> gave roughly around 700 BC. Now in that time, he was a prophet mainly to the southern kingdom in Judea, but also to the northern kingdom until the northern kingdom was, was taken captive and prophesizing to the people of Israel that they had walked away from God. They were doing their own thing. They were living their own life. They thought what was good and what was right according to their own eyes and they did it. And so Isaiah would come and he would prophesy to them about them walking and turning away, not only in their moment, but also now in this one chapter in Isaiah 53 about what the future would look like. And so he begins to talk about this coming Messiah, this one who will become the one that walks among us, the one that is here with us. He starts out by saying, who has believed what has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Now that phrase and that concept might not quite mean a lot for us, but what he's uh, indicating is that there's going to be a coming rejection of the Messiah that, that few are gonna, gonna have a hard time believing. And they're not gonna, they're not gonna want to accept it. <clears throat> they're gonna reject it. In fact, that phrasing as he does it directly would call people back to the understanding of the story of Exodus. This term, arm of God, was one that those uh, in Israel would understand that God used directly with Moses and saying when he would go to Pharaoh, the arm of the Lord or the arm of God, the strength of God's arm would be made clear in some of those signs and wonders that Pharaoh uh, <coughs> had, had been uh, you know, brought before him or that Moses brought before Pharaoh. But it also revealed that Pharaoh chose to reject those things. So the very evidence of these signs, the, the Nile turning into blood, uh, the frogs and the darkness and the, and, 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 you know, the insects, the locusts, all these kind of signs, all that were evident of the arm of the Lord and his strengths reaching down and, and showing who God is, Pharaoh rejected that. And his heart was hardened. And Isaiah is pulling that back to tell the people of Israel at that time, but also of the future generations, this will be true when the Messiah shows up as well too. I know a lot of us are saying, you know, we think, man, if I was there with Jesus, if I saw Jesus and he did all these things, man, I would be 100% in. The reality is you wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would have my doubts, I'd have my concerns. You even think about John the Baptist who proclaimed the Son of God was the Lamb of God, also had his doubts and concerns. You think of Thomas, you think of Peter, you think of all these people. Some of the wisest, the smartest people uh, in, in Jesus' time still had their doubts, their concerns. There's something about this that, that Isaiah is recognizing is going to happen. So we shouldn't be surprised when people reject the idea of Jesus. Shouldn't be surprised when people don't quite grasp the idea of Christmas. It's okay. That's not an offense to you. That's not something that you've done wrong or that you failed. That's just what the reality of, of, of humanity is. And this, <coughs> what uh, Isaiah is telling us that we should recognize and, and understand of that. And, and when you think about <coughs> all the miracles that Jesus or God that has done, all the miracles from Noah's Ark to, uh, to Exodus, to uh, uh, Israel as they're in the, uh, the, the wilderness or, or even in Joshua as he takes down the different cities or you, you move even into the New Testament the, you think of the virgin birth. You think of Jesus and, <coughs> and walking on water, feeding of the 5,000. All these miracles were demonstrating of God's his, his strength and, and his arm reaching down and, and doing something. Yet in all those miracles, still the greatest miracle that God has ever performed, the most outrageous miracle that God has ever done is that he takes those who are guilty and he turns them into innocent. That God justifies the ungodly. Think how radical that is because look, everyone knows that God punishes bad people and rewards good people, right? That's God's job, right? 
Okay, that's how we think, that God, <coughs> you're gonna take care of the bad people and you're gonna give good things to the good people. Yet, the gospel comes in and says that's not how the gospel works. The gospel comes in and what God's arm does in the, the revealing of Jesus and who Jesus is and why this is such a, a, a huge moment in, in time is that God enters into the story. And as he enters himself into the story through, the, through Jesus, he reveals to us that we're all guilty and that we can only come to God because of this person of Jesus. And yet when we come to God, the miracle takes place is that the, the, the guilty become innocent. The unrighteous become righteous. The lost become found. The blind get to see. And God's power is shown not in the destruction of the wicked, but taking the wickedness of the earth and turning it upon himself and giving back love. See, that's why we're called to love one another. We're called to love our enemies. It's easy to to do the things when someone does something nice to us, we do it nice to them. It's not so easy when our enemies do something to us and yet we're called to love. In that moment, we're demonstrating the character and the nature of who God is. God accepts unacceptable people. He honors shameful people. He treats fools and hearts with royal dignity as he, <coughs> Jesus steps into our place at the cross and he bears out real moral guilt far away from upon himself. His arm enters in and it helps <coughs> us to see and to know that this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. And this guilty release is the only way possible. There is no other. There is no moral clause. There is no performance base. There is no transaction that we can make other than accepting this hard truth of who Jesus is. This is what Isaiah was preparing his people, but he goes on a little bit further and he starts to describe a little bit about who we are. And so we recognize that in reality, we're a lot more superficial than we realize. In reality, we look at surface things that we judge by appearance. This is what Isaiah says now in verse two. For he grew up before him, or he grew up for him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of, or majesty that we should look at him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Now this isn't saying that, that you know, Jesus was disformed or he was ugly or any of those kind of terms. What we're saying here is that there is nothing about him that you would pick him out of a crowd and say that's the son of God. Look how amazing he is because he, he floats as he walks or there's a glow around him or there, there's something about him is an attractiveness. This isn't kind of the idea where uh, you know, he stood a foot taller than everyone else and, and he looked like you wanted him to look like. He was the average Joe, average person, just never even looking at and saying, wow, that's who we would come after. That's who we would follow. You see, the reality is if you and I were there, we would have despised, we would have rejected him, we would have turned around and tried to find the really cool people. The people that looked the part, the people that, that spoke the way we wanted them to, the people that, 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 that had the appearance that would make us want to follow them. That's what society does. If you don't believe me, take a look at what we see on social media. 
All the people that uh, have the most followers are the ones that are, are, are you know, the attractive, the intelligent, the, the high performers, the ones that we think mean success. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I'm gonna completely turn the tables about what it means to be the savior of the world. That is not about appearance, it's not about attraction. They didn't try to impress at that level. I mean, when you think about this, this is such an encouragement for you and I that we don't have to spend an, an, an effort or a, an, an ounce of our time trying to impress just at a superficial level. It's not how wonderful that, that, that I look or I act or I perform that, that will make people like me or love me. It's being authentic. And there's a genuineness about this that Jesus is demonstrating there, and it uses this phrase, like a root out of a dry land, that he is a tender plant that is weak and vulnerable. Always mesmerized that, that Jesus chose to enter into this world as a baby. Again, you see the parallels of the story of Exodus as uh, the baby is the story <coughs> of Moses and being discovered and found. It's, it's the most tender, innocent thing that you could ever imagine. My niece just had a baby a, about a month ago and it was there when I was at Thanksgiving and you know, my, my brother and I, again, you know, we've had our own kids but it's been a while so you know, we're holding them and we're trying to pass the baby back and forth and we're like, like, how do you do this without hurting the baby? You know, and everyone's just laughing. There's something just tender and innocent and so, so vulnerable about a baby. And you think about that as, as I'm trying to pass you know, the, the baby and, and hold the head and, and, and it's like that's who Jesus was at one point. That's who he was. And this is what God chose to do but yet again, <coughs> he was a tender plant but he was before the Lord Almighty Yahweh. The strong arm of God was with this tender plant who came out of this dry <coughs> rot, a root or this dry ground and I want to encourage you to think about even this root out of a dry ground. The fact is, is that God will use anyone from any place. If you ever thought, well I'm a nobody and nothing, why would God care about me? That's exactly what Jesus entered into this world as a nobody and nothing. Who could come from this place of Nazareth? How in the world could Bethlehem be the one where the Messiah would be born? All these things indicated that, that there was this humbleness, this, this nothingness about who God, Jesus was coming from, and it's an encouragement to us. In fact, Spurgeon says it this way, Christ is the root out of dry ground. There's no more to discourage the more that you should be encouraged. Read it the other way. Is it dark? Then all is fair for a grand show of light. The light should never seem so bright as when the night is at its very, very dark. The fact is that if you are a nobody that comes from no place and you don't think you have anything to offer, you are a prime person for God to use in a magnificent and mighty way. Because in that moment when God does that, you sit back and you say, it wasn't me. There's no way it could have been me. I'm just a nobody and nothing and got nothing. I don't understand everything. I mess up all the time. And yet the glory of God is the one that chose to use me. All the praise and the glory go to him. That's so why some people, you know, laugh at like, you know, when I mess up words, I can't pronounce things. It's just a humble reminder to me, it's not me. It's God that does these things. Even when my mom was making fun of my singing, oh, it's not me, you know? I, I can't do those things. 
but God shows up. And these dry, uh, this dry ground that, that Isaiah is talking about encourages us. Well, it goes on, verse three. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquitted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. Why in the world would Jesus come and sink so low? Well, he had to become one of us so that we could become one of him. The fact is, this humble beginning (coughs) is a reminder that he had to become one of us so we could become one of him. And interesting, in this passage, Jesus is called a man of sorrows. That Jesus is close to the brokenhearted, to those in grief and loss and difficulty, to those who feel like the world keeps pressing down upon him. Isaiah saying that Jesus understands, the Messiah knows what this is like. And he is a man of sorrows. So what do we do with this? God with us. How important is this? What does this remind us? What does this convince of us? Well, first of all, I want you to recognize that that those who receive him have to receive Jesus on his terms. Maybe the beginning of this Advent season is a moment for you to reject any term that you had of Jesus that was not coming from what scripture teaches us of who he is. You see, the Jewish culture, they were looking for a triumphant Messiah. They wanted a Jesus that fit their narrative that he would become the one to free them from Rome. And so when Jesus showed up to the scene, they rejected him. You see, Pharaoh, he wasn't even moved by the miraculous wonders He had other reasons to justify the things that were happening, things that were going on. He didn't want to be able to surrender and believe that the arm of God was showing up in a magnificent, miraculous way. The world looks around and they have all this glamour and charisma. They look for people that perform and so they want their Jesus to be that way. The question we have to ask, the thing that we have to say is can we receive him for who he is? Can we realize that the greatest miracle of all is that he can, or that you and I can be accepted into his family? That on his terms, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be morally more good than you were bad. You don't have to prove yourself to other people. You don't have to earn your salvation in any way. You simply come and receive that Jesus is who he says he is. That God in his infinite love for humanity sent his son to be born of a virgin birth, to live a life that demonstrated the character and the nature of who God is. And to go before the cross willingly as a sacrificial lamb to die in your place. It's not about power, it's not about triumphant success, it's not about anything that this life can give because you weren't created for this life. You see, Isaiah knew 700 years before that it would be hard for some to believe. And yet, as we go on, as we continue through Advent, I hope you come to believe that Jesus is everything he says he is. That 700 years before he showed up and 2,000 years later he still is who he says he is.